Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm uh, your host today. I am here to help uh, public, private, and nonprofit organizations in their efforts to get broadband every place it needs to be. Today, I am in my question authority mode here as I, or maybe I should say question conventional wisdom, because in this whole broadband space, there are a number of comments and theories and philosophies that seem to take root and take gospel and like, um, uh, I don't know, importance in the world, and some of those need to be challenged. Some of those myths need to be challenged, and so basically that's that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at some of the more common things that I think are holding communities back because they actually buy into the conventional wisdom. And here today um, as our guest is John Brown, who is the president and co-founder of CityLink Telecommunications. John, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks a lot, Craig, for inviting me. No worries. I was at the uh, Freedom to Connect conference, and you were on a panel. And a lot of that panel really, I think, was about questioning some of the conventional wisdom, and some of your comments were definitely contrary to the uh, the party line, if I can use that phrase in, in Washington. And so I said, well, let's let's get on the show and let's talk about some of these things and let's see what's uh, what's what. Now, we should probably start with, you know, you should describe a little bit about what your business does and then uh, and we'll just take it from there. Sounds good. And I like the analogy party line because it reminds us back to the good old rural days of telephones where you had a party line and, you know, multiple people shared one phone line. Um, kind of an environment. But anyway, um, CityLink is a privately owned company that's headquartered in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, about six, seven years ago, I came across a uh, fiber optic network that was uh, in trouble and in bankruptcy, and I uh, purchased it effectively out of bankruptcy. Um, and we got 19 buildings and uh, a little bit of fiber and so forth. And uh, since that time, we've grown it uh, to more than uh, 130, 140 some odd uh, commercial properties in the downtown area are connected to our fiber network. And we've got fiber now passing by and, and connecting up over uh, 500 plus homes. Um, and, and getting a lot of connectivity out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not venture funded. We're not VC funded today. Um, we're not a, a business that's looking to build and flip and sell down the road. Uh, we're really looking at a very long term, long view in building a better uh, a better community, a better village that we all live in. Mm-hmm. And what- uh, I think that optical gets us there. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the size of your coverage area? Um, we have about 18, 20 miles of, of infrastructure in the ground. Um, from a square miles, you know, square foot type perspective, um, I really couldn't tell you how much area where we pretty much cover the 87102 and parts of the 87104 um, zip codes. Um, and then we have some infrastructure in another part of the city that was a recent development uh, before the real estate market went in the toilet. Um, so this is all in Albuquerque got, itself? It's, it's all in Albuquerque itself. We are working on some stuff where 
uh, we will have uh, some fiber access in a couple of other states here, I think, uh, fairly soon. And we're going to be focusing on, on those Tier 2, Tier 4 type markets as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you definitely have a hands-on, uh, in-the-trenches, uh, literally, experience with broadband. So let's talk about literally. one of the... Yeah, quite literally. Anyway, let's talk about one of the, um, oh, I guess one of the longstanding, you know, myths, if you will, about broadband, which is that it's got to cost a fortune to have high speed. You know, every time there's a report about how the U.S. lags behind in price and performance, you know, you can go to various countries and get a gig for, you know, for 30, 40 bucks. And then, you know, you have the naysayers to say, well, you can't do that here in, in the U.S., but you can do that here. How, how is it that we can get, you know, sub hundred dollar a month broadband at, at, at the gig level? Well, I, I, it really comes down to, um, in, in our mind. I mean, I'm a router switching guy. I, I, I speak routers and BGP protocol, and 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 that's what my trade and training has been for decades. Uh, I didn't know anything about outside plant until I acquired this asset. And when we first started, we would hire contractors, and they would, we would say, we need to go from point A to point B, and they would go give us a number, and we'd pick the lowest of those numbers and tell them to go do it. And then we would write them a check. And the expense of that is pretty doggone high. So without have, since I'm the guy that writes the check, I get to feel that directly. Um, and I get to sit down and start figuring out, well, how do I make that pain less, as it were? And and this is where entrepreneurship, I think, really comes in, is really looking at your costs and figuring out how do you drive those costs down? Where are your cost elements? Uh, you know, when I first started in this business, we were paying $25, $30 a foot for metropolitan construction, uh, and then materials on top of that. Today, you know, uh, not letting my secret sauce out completely, but let's just say we're we're less than fifteen bucks a foot, all done, all finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 you know that's what a fifty, seventy percent reduction in in cost per foot. Um, that drives a huge amount to the ability to offer uh, services. Second piece of it is is really looking at what's your investment time. You know, if you're looking at well, I need to have a return on my investment in 12 months. This isn't a business for you. You know, I think if you want to be able to do consumer and small business, you need to look at a three to potentially five year return on your investment, um, and, and being able to do that. Um, and then you start to see, I think, some some reasonable numbers, and and you start to build a. Uh, uh, a customer base, a book of business that is is long term sustaining. Now you said fifteen dollars. I, I just want to interrupt just one second, make sure I got the clarification. Yeah. You, you have basically dropped the cost down to did you say fifteen dollars a foot? Yeah. Got it. Okay. Just want to make sure I'm accurate. Thanks. <clears throat> right. So I mean, if you're putting in a thousand feet, when I first started, that thousand foot project would probably cost me, you know, thirty to thirty five thousand dollars. Hmm. Okay. Now it's going to cost me fifteen thousand. So by less by so you're saying seventy five percent reduction. Got it. Right. Okay. So All my right. capital so is, is lower. 
Okay. Oh, ROI is a factor, but I mean, most most corporate America is still driving to what Wall Street tells them. Mm-hmm. And and Wall Street and your classic investor today wants to see short return windows and wants to be able to see things build and flip in in, in a three year window. That's not us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they want to come in, build it, pull a bunch of money, get out, move on to the next deal. That's not us. Right. Um, we're, we're not looking at it that way. I, I want to be 70 years old and still be running and, and doing parts of this business that makes sense and, and having fun at it. Right. So uh, it is and I think the that's also partial, a mindset in our country as well, but that's a whole different soapbox. Right. <laughs> we can come back to that one. But, but, but the core of it all is if you're running a business for the quick turnaround, that leads to high prices, low, low service. In, in some well, it, it leads to that you're not thinking. One, you're not thinking. Um, you're not thinking as creative. In, in where do you reduce your costs? Second is if you've got you know if the people that are making the decisions on on how to go about doing the construction and where to reduce your operating your your construction costs. Um, you know, it, it's not their money per se, and so there's less attachment to that dollar bill. Mm-hmm. If I if I if I come to you and I'm going to pull a hundred dollar bill out of your pocket, you're probably going to be a whole lot more interested in knowing what am I going to do with that hundred dollars and and how is it going to benefit you, versus if the guy down the street said, "Here, Craig, here's a hundred bucks," and then I come along and say, "Hey, Craig, can I have that hundred dollar bill?" And you're like, "Well, you know, easy come, easy go." <laughs> it's, it, there's there's an emotional attachment. I mean, the, the statement I use here is. Is our big incumbent telephone company um, the people that make the purchasing and sign the POs on a construction project are two states away? It's not their money. It's corporate. It's this sort of amorphous uh, concept of, of, of corporate dollar somewhere, and there's not there's not necessarily an attachment to it. Going, dang, how do I get? I, I, wow, that's I need to squeeze eight bucks out of this thing. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. Being a college kid and and you only you're digging through the bottom of your your couch and and your car seat to find the the two dollars so you can go buy a cheeseburger at Burger King because that's all you got right now until you get your next check. Mm-hmm. Big business doesn't necessarily have that really tight microscopic view of how they're spending their money. Uh, you know what we've done is we've taken the. Con- the construction company out of the picture. We have our own construction crew. We have our own licensing now. We have our own directional boring machines. We have our own dump trucks and our own backhoes and our own splicing trailers. Now we buy materials from distribution or the factory direct. In the old days, my contractors used to put 20 to 100% markup on their materials. I don't have that markup anymore. You know, Quest doesn't doesn't do their own construction. They hire it out to a contractor. And the contractor has to make a profit off of that construction job. To me, construction is not a profit center. To me, construction is a should be a, a, a zero neutral operation and it's a means to the end. And the end is getting the recurring revenue check. But big corporate America, you gotta keep in mind the the large incumbent players have made a substantial investment in copper infrastructure. They've depreciated that copper infrastructure, and they're going to monetize that copper infrastructure to the absolute maximum potential they can. 
And only when they finally have monetized that copper plant to the greatest extent possible are they really going to turn around and start looking at deploying fiber and deploying fiber to uh, to the small business and to the home. Bandwidth internet connectivity does not cost us that much money. It has been a it, it's like long distance. It's a race to zero. The revenue on it is 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 uh, low and uh, per meg, and those costs have been coming down. Fifteen years ago, I paid fifty thousand dollars a month for a DS three forty five meg pipe. To pay today, I pay less than eight hundred dollars a month for a gigabit of internet backbone connectivity from a major backbone provider. So your per meg cost is radically dropping. You have to factor all of that in. You have to look at the network all the way across the board. Mm-hmm. Would you say then that um, a more truer conventional wisdom is that the smaller companies with local ties may be more... Uh, receptive to managing its costs better so that the customer gets a better price. Sure. I, I, I think the analogy is dinosaurs and furry mammals. Who won and why? <laughs> the furry mammals, because they were smaller, more nimble, and able to turn on a dime. So when the brontosaurus was dropping its foot down, the furry mammals were able to scurry out of the way before they got squished. Uh-huh. At, and the furry mammals today have the ability to move around. That's why I have a beard because I'm a furry mammal. <laughs> I, I that's just had well, to throw a little bit of humor there for you. <laughs> no, I'm sure it makes uh, a lot of sense. Because I was wondering about the beard thing. I didn't know, you know, because I mean, you know, New Mexico being hot and all, but now I understand. It's it's a survival tech tactic there. It is. slid off my head so you know that's all right that's all right so now let if i backtrack a second and get on a more serious note um several months ago sonic net was a guest of mine here on the show and Mm -hmm. and they were were um coming to san francisco to offer uh 79 dollar a month gigabit service for residential and but their Mm -hmm. philosophy was that they couldn't offer businesses the same rate and there were a number of reasons some of it having to do with the operating cost of running the network to service business needs because businesses need more bandwidth than what typically is needed in the home, and the usage pattern was very different. Um, what are your uh-huh. thoughts on that? Um, I love business. Businesses are great, especially small businesses, because I think, and, and my my decade-long collection of data from business customers and residential customers' experience tells me that my small business customer needs the bandwidth from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to be sort of very simplistic about the time frame. And my residential subscribers really need the bandwidth from about 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So I'm maximizing my, uh, my bandwidth cycle. I don't have a sine wave where it goes up and down and dips up and down based on, oh, it's it's now evening, so all my usage is going to drop because all I'm doing is focusing on, on business. Or, hey, look, it's night. That's when I peak up because that's all I'm focusing on is, is residential. Um, you, know, you have to look at business customers. There are different levels of business customers. 
the small business, which is what a majority of our country's economics is built on, is small business, not large corporate, you know, Fortune 100 type organizations. But that small business, the small law firm, the small coffee shop, the restaurant, the bar, the small accounting firm, the small medical or dental practice, those businesses, their bandwidth usage is fairly similar to residential usage. There's, there's peaks and spikes, but they're not constantly slurping the Internet 7 by 24. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you start looking at, at, at your bandwidth and looking at ingress bandwidth and egress bandwidth, you know, the bandwidth coming into your network and the bandwidth leaving your network as a service provider, and you really need to pull those apart and look at them as two different things because your customers are eyeballs, and that's mostly bandwidth into you. And if you're in the hosting business, that's mostly bandwidth out of you. Um, you need to look at those different pieces and figure out how you buy that bandwidth and, and what kind of customer mixes you're working on to maximize those backbone connections. Mm-hmm. I look at, I, I'm looking out my window here on the 18th floor of, of our office building, and I see an office park about a mile and a half away between my building downtown and that office park about a mile and a half away are a whole bunch of homes. I might as well monetize my fiber route going over to that office park by hooking up homes as well. Mm-hmm. And so, then I get to an office park, and I service there, and then I go to the next one, which goes through a bunch of homes. So you really should try to work on monetizing the fiber network as across the board as much as you can. And my last point about businesses is business owners and business employees, they live in homes. So if you're going to be servicing that small business – Maybe you're also able to service that small business owner's home and give them a connection between their home and their business, which enables telecommuting, which enables security and video monitoring, which enables remote backup. A whole bunch of things can all of a sudden happen between the business and the home. Hmm. That's interesting. Um Huh. So so in essence you can so it comes back to the creative planning part of it uh, as you build the network is trying to take these factors into consideration to structure the infrastructure if you will to um to best capitalize on the opportunity while still keeping the price at a fairly uh affordable rate. Yeah, I mean my 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 businesses are $99 a month. That's a that's a 10 meg pipe guarantee with a burst capability. Right now we let them burst up to 100 we actually deliver it as a gig E to the to the premise, um, and, and residentials are, are are basically seventy bucks a month, and that's a hundred meg pipe burstable, and those are all symmetrical bandwidth points. Hmm. So you know you 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 allow the bandwidth to be there, and 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 the thing we focus on that gets me is we focus on internet speed, internet access. When we're building a backbone, we're building the network, we're not building it for Internet connectivity. Internet is merely an application. We need to abstract and start thinking more than just Internet because voice is an application. Look at all the hosted voice stuff that's going on these days. Voice is an application. Data remote backup is an application. I mean, try backing up your laptop across an asymmetrical DSL link where your upload speed is 800 kilobits per second. 
He's going to be backing up for days off that laptop. If that's a fiber connection with a symmetrical pipe, now that backup makes a heck of a lot more sense. Cloud computing access. You need symmetrical bandwidth really for good cloud computing. If you're going to move your whole office over to a Google Apps environment or an Amazon Cloud environment or something like that, you need that bandwidth both directions. So it's, when I'm building a fiber network, I'm not looking at it because I'm going to give somebody faster Internet. Internet is just one of hundreds of, of potential applications that that fiber and that IP, TCP IP network enables. And that's what we've got to be looking at is what are those applications on that network. Hmm. Which is a very different thing, I think, than what the discussion tends to be. The discussion tends to be all about uh, the web. How much? How fast can I get? What kind of, you know, surfing can I do? You know, what kind of bandwidth can I absorb? Because I've got I'm downloading videos and so forth. Um, in this in that scenario, if I follow this to a, a you know a broader conclusion, um, looking at things such as creating an intranet, which in essence is facilitating data traffic within the city proper or within the network within the city proper is a, number one, it's a service to be provided, but I, I'm guessing it's also a less expensive service to provide than necessarily providing access to the public Internet and back, or am I wrong in that assumption? I think your cost basis is 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 uh, almost the same because you, your, your, your biggest chunk of your cost is getting the pipe to the to the points that you want to provide that private network to. Mm-hmm. Your, your your last mile transport is where your cost, for the most part, is, as opposed to the cost of getting out to the internet. And if you're mm-hmm. building your network, if you're building your network from the core out, as a as an as an all TCP/IP all Ethernet network, uh, as opposed to dealing with TDM things like Sonnet and T1s and Frame Relay and ATM and stuff like that, if you're building it as an all IP network then whether or not those IP packets go to the general Internet or they go across an Ethernet private line or Ethernet inside of MPLS or something like that between two endpoints within a metro network, your IP network is your IP network. You now have the ability to, once again, deliver applications. That private intranet is merely an application on the infrastructure. Okay. I mean, think about it like highways, right? I mean, we build a highway... But when we built when we built our freeways, one of the things we built our interstates for was so we could land B fifty twos on it if we ever went right. to war with Russia. Right. right? So mm-hmm. that was merely an application on our on our interstate. Now we got truck drivers and we got cars and we got all kinds of different applications that run across our freeways. But we've built the freeway in such a way that we can support all of those different applications. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I got, I got a question from one of my um, Twitter followers uh, saying, "Are do you have any cost stats that you can share on per meg or transport cost? Um, I will say that uh, if you're if you able to reach any sort of semi-major Internet connection point around the country, you should be able to buy backbone internet connectivity if you're an ISP for less than $5 $2 a meg at gigabit commit rates. Mm-hmm. If you're paying if you're paying more than $5 a meg, um you're paying way too much. 
Now, when, when you say you are paying more, to get it from. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me just one. When you say you, if you sure. are paying more, are you talking to your fellow ISPs? Or are you talking about the the consumer? No, I'm talking about to my fellow ISPs, mm-hmm. my fellow service providers that are providing internet. Okay. And, and, and we have to keep in mind that I go buy a gigabit of internet backbone connectivity. I'm not selling, you know, you don't have a one-to-one correlation between for every gigabit of, of bandwidth that I have sold to an end user, to end users, to my customers, that I have to have a one gigabit of internet. I mean, the typical numbers are, Eight to one, ten to one over subscription capacity, and nobody notices. In the DSL world and in the cable cable modem world, that over subscription number is typically much more along the lines of of forty, sixty to and upwards of a hundred to one. So they oversubscribe the network, just like we oversubscribe the telephone world. Hmm. And and so you have a – when you start buying lots more bandwidth, you also have a compressibility, as I call it, a compressibility factor where you can actually get more perceived capacity and and customer satisfaction with bigger pipes. And that comes down to that the packets actually move at a quicker rate, bit per second, uh, down a larger pipe than they do a smaller pipe. Mm Mm-hmm. But also speaking to the ISPs and service providers out there that are thinking about this or looking at it, it also comes down to, to engineering your IP network. Are you at a, a peering point? Can you get to an ex- Internet exchange point you know, like an NE2IX uh, or a, an Equinix or a PAX or Packet Clearinghouse or any of these kinds of Internet exchange points around the country? Can you get to those places so that you're peering with a lot more folks. We we have over 300, almost 400 BGP peering sessions in our network today. And, and, and that peering traffic is traffic going to other service providers that I don't have to pay my backbone transit providers for. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many small, mid-sized ISPs don't get that peering is really still an extremely valuable uh, tool and, and helps in, in cost savings and helps in better network performance. Mm-hmm. Now, this might be a reach, but are there any ways? So, if a community is driving a broadband project, right? They they've gotten a lot of the stakeholders engaged, and everybody's moving forward, and they want to have you know broadband. They want to bring in a company to do it, or they want to have the public utility do it, or what have you. What kind of influence can the uh, the community, in the broad sense, have on uh, ISPs seeing the light? Because what you described is, obvi- no, you know, no doubt accurate. But I sort of look and go, well, could the average person or could the average, you know, community broadband team know enough or understand enough to kind of ask these questions or kind of guide or push uh, ISPs to move down, like to take some of the the, the suggestions that you're putting out there? Well, I think a lot of that is 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 getting the the customer base uh, to actually communicate with the service providers and and and, and provide that feedback to them. Um, and and the other piece of it is the service providers to actually listen and and take that feedback. Um, 
here in Albuquerque, I mean, we're we're, we're blessed with a city that uh, generally, from a city government perspective, generally gets what we're trying to do. And, and we've had neighborhoods and neighborhood associations come to us and say, we want fiber in our neighborhood. Okay, cool. Well, this is what it's going to basically cost to get there, and this is the kind of re recurring revenue and return on investment numbers I need to see to be willing to take the risk to, to come into your neighborhood and, and build. And I've watched neighborhood associations, they go away, and they start canvassing locally in their neighborhood, getting people to sign and say, yes, if, if you come, we'll, we'll, we'll take your service. And they come back to us, and they give us the numbers, and then we sit down and start working on how are we going to get there? How are we going to get the backbone into that neighborhood so that we can provide the services they're looking for? So I, I think that you know any any savvy business owner who wakes up one day and comes to work and, and finds 100 of their customers standing at his front door all chanting, we want more service, we want more service, uh, that's sort of a, a, a pretty good indicator that... Um, he ought to start figuring out how to get them that service. Mm -hmm. and I sound a little sarcastic. I probably sound a little flip on it, but it's 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 creating that demand. It's also educating that demand, educating the customers that that it's not just internet; it's applications. And, and that's the message that we really need to work on: is how do we get those applications? How do we get the end users to really understand all the different kinds of applications? that a really good symmetrical broadband network delivers to them and thus helping them drive why they want it. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, been, I think, one of the challenges for some communities, in, in some part because people haven't really fully understood what you can do with it. I mean, I, we are moving past that now, but I think if you look a year ago, especially two, three years ago, the, the 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 main champions within the community may not have had the full understanding to be able to articulate that need in such a way that everyone goes, oh, well, we could use this application, we could use that application. It was more about they would go to the common, like the lowest common denominator argument. We don't have broadband, we need it. We don't have fast broadband, we need faster, you know, internet access. So they kind of defaulted to what they knew because they didn't know more. And I think at least now, maybe you're seeing this or maybe you're not, but the, the now people seem to be uh, a little more educated so they can educate their peers a little better. I have bars coming to me in Albuquerque wanting service not because they need faster Internet at the bar. It's because they want to reduce the, they want to reduce the transaction time for the credit card machine. Broadband connection does that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, there's, we've got a couple of bars where we've done some studies and, and just sort of generally watched. We are typically saving them two or three hours of labor each Friday and each Saturday night on their peak weekend nights because those credit card transaction times are drastically reduced. And you sit there and think about that, and most people don't even see where that is. But they've got to understand the technology side of it is, is that that credit card terminal is a dial-up modem. And so it makes that 800 number call, out it goes. It takes 30, 45, maybe even 60 seconds for that transaction to go all the way through from the time the modem synchronizes and the data goes back and forth and the piece of paper prints out. Whereas a credit card terminal that's connected to our fiber network, where we have that symmetrical, highly reliable bandwidth, 
that credit card transaction is done in one, one and a half seconds. I mean, just do the arithmetic. Ten people in line waiting to get their card processed. If it's a minute, that's ten minutes before the last guy gets his card done. Mm-hmm. If it's on, on our high-speed fiber, that credit card transaction is done in 15, 20 seconds for all ten of those people. And so you can push more people through the queue. Mm-hmm. And the bars don't, I mean, the bars care about that. I mean, it's all about how many drinks can I sell per hour running through the till. And then the other thing they care about, they don't care about Internet. They care about, they want to be able to look at the video that they're installing, watching the cash registers on their iPad or on their iPhone with classic asymmetrical bandwidth where the upload speed, in other words, the bandwidth leaving the bar out to the Internet is really, really slow. They really can't watch those cameras remotely somewhere else on the Internet because the bandwidth is too slow. With a symmetrical pipe, they can watch that video in real time and actually see what's happening in all parts of their business from that video surveillance and, and, and on the cameras, uh, making sure that people aren't stealing out of the register or stealing drinks uh, or supplies. Mm-hmm. Let's, to them, um, okay, that's so worth the money, extra money they're willing to pay than to pay for, for classic DSL. Mm-hmm. Let's... Um I know we're going down a really good path here, but let me shift gears a little bit because I want to address the issue um, one, of the, one of the people in the uh, chat room here has brought up, which is um, ISPs in the UK, and I'm sure here in, in the it may be the same here in the US, um, basically they just, they just resell the service by the incumbent. They just hold, you know, they, they take the wholesale model, they take whatever price, they mark it up, and they push it through. So they really aren't giving... Um, their their end users uh, a choice now here in the U.S. and then actually even in, in in the U.K. you know communities are doing building their own and they're doing it in a in a variety of ways but I know recently there was an article uh, about um, Palo Alto where someone came in with a report and said you know if user finance broadband doesn't work it'll be a failure in a competitive market yada 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 all right and you and I have talked about this offline before today. Um, how real is that conclusion? And if it's not real, you know, what are some alternatives to prove that actually um, user finance broadband does work? Well, I mean, user finance, is, we're, we're all financing our connectivity. Whether we're financing it, whether we're writing that check to Verizon or AT&T, uh, you know, we're still financing that connectivity because they still have infrastructure costs and, and networks to build and maintain. So I, I'm not necessarily sure I, I really agree with this t- the concept of user financed. Well, know, user I financed. From some the, of the, I was going to say user financed in the sense of, um, as in utopia, or if we, uh, with EC Fiber in Vermont where the community says we are going to pay directly to build an asset that we or a co-op or the public utility or whatever is going to own that. Now, in the Palo Alto case, someone came in and offered them a price of, not offered them a price, but sent out a survey with a price of, I don't know, $3,000 a person. If you, you know, if all you guys paid $3,000 in advance, you know, you can now finance a broadband network. Now, forgetting the, the price point for a second, but it's sort of the concept of 
we the people are going to pay specifically to build an infrastructure and and launch that. That's what I think the survey report was about. Well, I would look at I think you know, a little bit in the Vermont side. If I remember what what the folks out there are doing correctly, they are actually each of those folks that are writing a check to quote unquote fund the the construction, they're actually doing it as a you know legitimized investment, just like you would be investing in any kind of a business. But what you've got here is you've got the community uh, investing in itself. Um, and and there is a, a return on that investment, and, and there is reward back to those individual investors. And they happen to be, you know, Mary Jo and, and Bill and Frank and, and Tom and, and so forth down on the street writing a check in and, and helping fund the organization that way. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in rural communities, I think that's a very viable uh, potential. In fact, a lot of the early electric and rural telephone companies, you know, 50, 100 years ago, got themselves off the ground because a whole bunch of farmers and cattle folks and, and others got together and said, well, we need this. Well, let's put together, hey, guys, if you all put up 10 grand, we can go build ourselves an electric company. And they did. I think coming into some place like Palo Alto, you, you have a whole different, you have a different mix. You have a different environment, and um, you know there is no silver bullet. So what works in a rural area isn't going to necessarily work in a dense metropolitan. I think for someone to say that it's going to be three thousand dollars per home to connect uh, in, in Palo Alto. Wow, I think that's you know probably high by at least two times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a, a, a reasonably savvy business uh, could come in and look at that and and build a network that could provide service to the small businesses and residentials in Palo Alto um, at a pretty competitive price point and, and, and a pretty good growth rate. Now, if they're looking at wanting to get a three-year return on their investment, well, then maybe they do need that three-dollar, that three-thousand-dollar number. But I don't think you know, three-year return window is is from a long-term perspective is 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 really viable across the board. Mm-hmm. So there there are different. So for, so right off the bat, the first thing is for the report that came out to sort of give this blanket statement is probably erroneous in that it's a blanket statement. And in broadband, as in many things related to technology, um, every user or every community is very different. So it's it's kind of a broad blanket that probably doesn't apply equally across the board. Should be our takeaway. I, I would highly agree. I would highly agree that 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 each case is different. And mm-hmm. each community is different, each municipality is different. Um, you know, each part of our country is different. Uh, you know, just look at San Francisco, right? You've got Chinatown, you've got the Russian district, you've got uh, the Polish section, you've got all these different sections in San Francisco. But you walk into each of those different sections, and there's a different feel, there's a different vibe, there's a different way those sections of town work and operate and, 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 and interact with the other sections of town. 
Um, so it's not just one simple utopic view across an entire community. Right. Um, you know, part part of the thing also is is that most of my fellow small mid sized ISPs think doing fiber is really hard. Guess what? It's not. You just gotta be willing to you gotta be willing to step up to a different level and, and go, Wow, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do something that's outside of my comfort zone. I'm not gonna resell copper DSL from somebody else. I'm gonna go build my own infrastructure. How do I do that? How do I start doing that? And and you start one foot at a time and you start building it and pretty soon you wake up one day and you go, Damn, I got a hundred and forty, hundred and fifty, whatever it is, buildings now on my network? Holy Toledos. So what's a good way to um I don't know, look at the self financing option. In other words, if you were going into a community, I mean, aside from you know, you obviously got to do a certain amount of study of the the particulars. Mm -hmm. But are there some set of kind of call it high level rules or guidelines to say um, if you are community X and you are a small to mid sized community and you want to sell to to user finance this in some way, what key things have to be in place? Well, I mean, you, you, the first thing is, is and, and since I'm focusing more on Tier 2, Tier 3, Tier 4 type markets, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to coming into San Francisco, I mean, if San Francisco wanted me to come in and build fiber there, I certainly probably would not say no. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm more interested in Modesto. I'm mm -hmm. more interested in King City, just to name a few places in California. You know, you're sort of your neck of the woods out here in New Mexico. I'm more interested in Roswell or Las Cruces mm -hmm. uh, and, and some of those kind of communities than I am, let's say, going to Denver or, or Phoenix. Um, the first thing you have to look at is is how are you going to get connected to the rest of the world? What 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 is your stranglehold and what is your what is your barrier to being able to get cheap internet bandwidth, backbone bandwidth? <clears throat> And, and so in a lot of rural communities, your challenge is, is how do you get out of the rural community and back to uh, a major connection point? And so you, you have to look at that, and then you have to sit down and try to figure out how you're going to solve that problem. And one way to potentially solve that problem is looking at the national carriers that have fiber that's crisscross all across our country. Many of those fiber cables run through our rural communities that we want to get hooked up. What do they want? What do they need? What What is their hot sell item? And one of the things that the, the larger carriers are really tracking these days is hooking up fiber to cellular towers. I don't know how many cell towers are in King City, California, but I bet you there's more than a dozen. Mm-hmm. And I bet you there's iPads and iPhones and Androids in King City, California. Um, and I bet you those people want to be able to get get their video, you know, get their app, as it were, mm -hmm. or their apps across their iPad through that cellular network. So I'm sure the cell guys are really interested in trying to figure out how to get fiber to those towers. Well, if you're going to go into the fiber business, hey, maybe if you give a little to get to quote a good friend of mine, mm -hmm. um, 
you can turn around and build a business case where you can get some fiber in the ground by making a, a great deal with the cell guys on getting fiber to their towers and helping them reduce their operating expenses. Because you're not going to go into cellular business. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not going to go in. I'm not going to go try to compete with Verizon and T-Mobile and AT&T. Um, but I'll be happy to provide uh, fiber to their tower. Hell, I'd probably be happy to provide fiber to their tower just for the cost of construction to their tower. And then they can have X number of strands. Now I cut my not my construction costs just got paid for, right? Mm-hmm. And now I got fiber going around a whole bunch of places. Now I start selling service on that fiber to customers. Um, so, you know, you you have to look at, at at who are your anchor institutions, which is one of those wonderful buzzwords that's running around these days. What are the anchor institutions? <laughs> We're going to go hook them all up. Um, you have to to look at what is the bandwidth needs of the community. The community being the governmental organization that runs that town or that 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 municipality. Um, what kinds of needs do the schools need? Um, is it easy to get on the power poles, or is it a pain in the tush to get on the power pole? Mm-hmm. Um, we've made the decision that we're not going to go on poles. Everything we're going to do is underground. Yeah, it's more expensive in the short term, but operating cost-wise, it's lower cost in the long term. Um, and we don't have to pay the electric company to be on the pole. Um, so, uh, you know, and then what are you going to sell? What kind of services can you sell in that community? Uh, you know, the, the the staple should be voice and data. You, you should be able to build a business model selling voice and data to local businesses across your fiber line. And you should be able to show that that is immensely more beneficial and more reliable than deployed over copper wire or coaxial copper cable. Um, so those are sort of the high level. You know, look at the, Look at the market. Look at what is being used there. What's there today? What are the anchor organizations? What kind of bandwidth requirements do they need? Who can you come and build a, a partnership with, whether it's a private-private partnership or mm-hmm. private-public partnership? How can you build a partnership with those organizations um, and help them engineer? Because a lot of these guys are going to need help engineering the network in these small communities. Help them engineer their network um, and help get the cost of deployment reduced or shared amongst multiple potential customers. Um, and then leverage that to take you to to the next step and start you know infilling your connectivity. Mm-hmm. But before you go do all of that, really figure out how you're going to get in and out of that community to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it, if it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars a month to get a gigabit connection out of Podunk somewhere um, to the rest of the world, that's a really hard business case to make. Especially if you have to pay that fifty thousand to your competitor, the incumbent phone company, uh, in or cable company in that market, mm-hmm. you've got to figure out how to solve that problem. Now, what do you think about the um, the president's Dig Once executive order? Oh, I help? think it's uh, I think it's about a uh, hundred years too late. <laughs> we should have had that a long time ago. Um. I think, you know, uh, the president uh, coming out with that executive order, um, 
is, is a really good idea. Uh, the real truth of this is going to be whether or not the various governmental agencies can truly execute on that order and can we really see that 90% cost uh, reduction and, and, and paperwork barrier reduction uh, quickly come into play. Mm-hmm. You know, a few so, years ago, floating through the Senate and the, sta- and the Congress was a, a bill to be tacked onto the federal highway spending that would say that any time there's federal dollars being spent on a road, that the state needed to put conduit in the ground to support future broadband. I thought that was a pretty good bill, but I wanted to make one change to it, and that mm-hmm. the state wasn't the organization that put conduit in the ground. Because, frankly, I don't trust the state government to really know how much conduit to put in the ground for future growth. What I think that the state should have done, or what they should have changed the bill to, is that there would be a 90-day notice that says, hey, we're going to be digging a 10-mile trench from here to there in 90 days. Everybody who's a a registered telecommunications provider in our state who wants to be in that trench, you've got 30 days to tell us you want to be in a trench, and then you need to be in that trench putting your pipe in on this day because we're going to close it up in 95 days. And then all of us run out and we make the decision on whether or not we want to be in that trench. And if we do, we throw our, our junk in the trench. Uh-huh. Then, you're, then you get away from, oh, the state only put four conduits in and three of them got taken by the incumbent. If you want to be in a trench, then you can get in the trench. Um, But that bill never went anywhere. So seeing this come out as an executive order is is a really good thing. It certainly says that that the executive branch of our government is serious about wanting to get this country ignited and get broadband out there. So we're not 34th, we're not 38th in the country. I mean, in the world as far as as, uh, connectivity speeds. We get back up there into that leadership position. Um, let's leverage those federal highways. Let's leverage those 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 U.S. Uh, roads. Let's make sure that the Forest Service doesn't impede our ability to get on a mountaintop and and provide wireless connectivity into a rural area where it is just completely cost prohibitive to bring fiber. So I, I'm really in, in a, a high high amount of support, and I really applaud the administration. For doing that now, the question is, can the actual various branches of the government—not the branches, but the the various agencies—get out there and actually execute on that executive order and, and get it done? That's where I think we'll see whether or not it it, it ultimately works out. Mm-hmm. Now, does the U.S. Ignite program, with its emphasis on you know spurring innovation through a number of partnerships and creating test beds and so forth, does this help? Uh, the dig once executive order does it hinder it? Is it neutral one way or the other? I, I think that as we've tried to figure out what, and I come back to that wonderful word again, applications. Mm-hmm. What applications are going to be created that um, make use of this kind of infrastructure, this application delivery infrastructure? Um, that's just going to further support the business case for de- for building that application delivery infrastructure ergo fiber or and or licensed wireless for backbone 
into areas where fiber today is just too cost prohibitive. But in that respect, I mean, if you take a, a technology-neutral view, uh, if U.S. Ignite encourages infrastructure, be it wireless or wired, that's still a win for the for the overall you know consumer. Sure. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Very good. Now, how, how do you see, what do you see coming out at the end of that? I mean, there was a lot of hoopla for about a week and a half on U.S. Ignite, and then there was you know all they 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 trot out all the various partners and so forth, and it just becomes like this huge thing, uh, which is a good. I mean, you got all these people involved, right? All these people are engaged. But in a year, what do you think will be the real, you know, I don't know, quantifiable outcome of all of this? Oh, now we dare into my my cynicism hat. Oh boy. <clears throat> um, optimistically, I hope that we find that it's a a one day one page uh, permit application to get into the federal right of way on a highway. Uh, I don't see that happening because there's way too many fiefdoms and way too many silos within uh, our governmental uh, environment. The bureaucracy is is high. The latency and and jitter, to, to use some networking terms, there is is pretty atrocious. Um, so I'm, I'm more pessimistic in that. Will there actually be a lot of quantifiable? Uh, return? I don't know. I mean, I've seen a lot of government initiatives come and go, and you stand around and go, well, that was pretty cool. Did we actually get anything out of it? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of BIP and BTOP broadband stimulus projects that are really in trouble. You know, it's a year and a half down the road, and they still haven't deployed an inch of fiber. Um, and, you know, great. The money's been put out there. The money has been spent. Where's the infrastructure? Um, so, you know, the, you got me in my pessimistic cynicism there. I hope it's good, but ask me in a year, and, and I hope to be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> that seems fair enough. That keep fair keep enough. in mind that a lot of the videos that are out there on U.S. Ignite right now, mm-hmm. you know, are projects that have already been underway for several years in multiple communities. Right. And and yes, it's an example of what U.S. Ignite can do. Here's communities that have already done it. So how do we get more communities to show up? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say U.S. Ignite is, you know, as you just said, it's a week and a half old than the... These communities in a week and a half, poof, showed up with fiber all over the place. Mm-hmm. Now, we got about five minutes. You and I had a conversation a couple of days ago about government-run networks, um, and I assume that in that discussion you were including utility, public utilities that run networks. Um, I'm a big champion of those. You, not so much. What's your what's what's your feeling on the you know government run networks um well i'm going to split the hair a little bit there and say that a government that already has a well established utility business let's i don't know let's pick one that everyone should know lafayette mm-hmm. beautiful town beautiful community in louisiana 
They already have an electric utility. They already have that infrastructure in place. They have the capability to respond to down electrical lines, down power poles, you know, infrastructure that has been damaged one way or another, and, and they need to get service up and quickly. <clears throat> it's a natural add-on for them to bring in fiber and, and telecommunication services there. Um, so if they if they are able to, from a technology perspective, appropriately staff and and provide the kinds of technical support that are needed to run a uh, an optical network, then it seems like a reasonable place for them to go. A community that is. <clears throat> where all of your utilities are basically, or virtually all of your utilities, are basically provided by private sector or non-government organizations, <clears throat> them getting in the business of doing that, I don't think makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, because I think they're not necessarily geared up and staffed and trained and knowledgeable enough to really put that together the right way. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Internet is a 7 by 24. This application delivery platform is a 7 by 24 platform that has, at this point, has just got to work all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, I disagree that a community that doesn't run an existing utility organization, you know, an electric or telephone utility, and I don't really consider water to be a qualified source because that's basically underground and and <clears throat> you don't have quite as much there are differences between that and running wires or cables either above ground or below ground uh -huh. um i don't think they should be in that business uh -huh. i think there should be private public partnerships that enable private sector to be able to provide that infrastructure and those services because i think also private sector has the ability to to adapt and change to new technology far faster than the government does. Uh -huh. The government goes and picks vendor X for their their CPE, their equipment they're going to put on every home. Government's not going to change from vendor X to vendor Y anytime soon, even if vendor Y is now, this is where the technology is going and it's a better choice. I've already forklifted my network twice. I've gone from vendor X to vendor Y. I'm now on actually vendor Z, and I like vendor Z. And and so vendor Z, and I've changed out all my customer equipment because vendor Z had a much better solution. I don't see government doing it that fast. Right, okay. So there's a flexibility aspect of this, and that, and that, that becomes a factor where a public-private partnership, if structured correctly, uh, can address. Now, we're, we're down to a yes. minute, so we're going to have to pretty much wrap, but I do want to um, thank you, John, for all of your insights, and as I expected listening at uh, Freedom to Connect, uh, you do have a lot of good insights on this, you know, a lot of these issues related to building effective and affordable uh, broadband networks, so thank you very much for being here, and maybe we'll bring you back again sometime soon. I, I, w I appreciate the opportunity, and I'd certainly love to come back maybe one of these days we could we could set up a little panel or something where we get several of us on on the air and we can throw ideas back and forth and talk about you know the different kinds of solutions in different parts of the country and how they work or don't work Excellent. what are those challenges just as an idea 
Yep, that that sounds good to me. And let me thank our audience for being here. Uh, we got kudos from the UK for a great performance today. Um, uh, thank you, and hope to come back for another one of our shows. Everybody have a great day. Uh, talk to you soon. <laughs>